Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 21. In this lesson, you will learn the future tense verb, and then I will look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The Greek future expresses action primarily as the English future does. That is, action that will take place in future time. However, as with all the Greek tenses, the future may also take one other aspect depending upon the speaker's expectation of a possible event. Let's take a look at the uses of the future. The first usage is called the predictive future. The predictive future describes an event that is expected to occur in future time. Examples are found in John chapter 14 verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will remind you all things that I said to you. Those are the future tenses. Whom the Father will send in my name, and also he will teach, simple future tense, and also he will remind you of the things. Expectation is a future fulfillment. Another example is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you as future. The next usage is called the progressive future. The progressive future expresses the action as progressive in the future. For example, in Philippians chapter 1 verse 18. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. I will continue to rejoice is a progressive future. It has the idea of action as progressive, but still in the future. Another example is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will continue to do the things we command you. We will continue to do the things we command you. That is the idea behind a progressive future where the action is progressive in the future. The next usage is called the imperative future. The imperative future expresses the action as a command, as you would expect. Dana and Manti point out, since a command necessarily involves futurity, this is a very natural idiom. So an example is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she will bring forth a son and you shall name him Jesus. There is that imperative future. You shall name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Another example is found in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said to him, You shall love, there it is, the imperative future, command, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
Another example is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy, that's a command, because I am holy. Our example of negative commands, such as that found in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, You shall not covet. There it is, the imperative. You shall not covet. The imperative future. The next usage is the deliberative future. The deliberative future is used in questions where the answer has some uncertainty. These questions may be real or rhetorical. An example of a real question is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says this, Certainly not. Very strong. How shall we? There it is, the deliberative future. It's, it, it's used in questions where there's some uncertainty. How shall we, who are dead to sin, live any longer in it? an example of a deliberative future. Uh, an example of a rhetorical question can be found in Romans chapter 9 verse 14. What will we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? The question, the rhetorical question, what will we say then? Of course, the response is a natural, absolutely not. God is righteous always. Dr. Young identifies the following. He says, rhetorical questions that challenge the readers or listeners to ponder the implications of the question and to respond appropriately, as in Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape? How shall we escape? That's the, the rhetorical question. If we neglect so great a salvation... The rhetorical question, Dr. Young continues, actually expresses an implicit statement. We will surely not escape. And finally, the nomnic future. The nomnic future expresses a statement of fact that is true for all time. An example is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. For each one will bear his own burden. It expresses a statement of fact for all time. Each one will bear, there's the future, his own burden. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. This is the nomic future expressing a statement of fact. So, for scarcely, for a righteous man will die. There's the nomic future. It's a statement of fact. All men die. Now let's turn to our text for today, and I hope you've gone to the website and got the detailed analysis. And you've done your translation, and you have the translation in front of you. So let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-5, through 5, Overcoming the World. John starts out in chapter 5, providing a test for being born again. A test for being born again. 
He says, Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, he has been begotten from God. The adjective pos, every, along with the participle pistuo, a present active participle, nominative, masculine, singular, with the definite article to believe, has the sense whosoever believes, or every one that believes that Jesus is the Christ, not leaving anyone out of the group. John says this in chapter 1 of his gospel, but as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. The thing believed is pointed out by the Hati conjunction introducing the objective clause that Jesus is the Christ. The short statement serves as a test for a born-again person. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the angel Gabriel pronounced the birth in Luke chapter 1. Quoting from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, and told Mary to name the child Jesus, which is of Hebrew origin from Yoshua, Joshua or Jeshua, meaning Jehovah is salvation. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 through 7 speaks of the child born as the Son, capital S, Son, the future Messiah, the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek Christos, uh, the Christ, from the adjective kurio, to anoint or the anointed one. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. It says, Therefore unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform this what a statement That's clearly a statement of God himself the son is God why because he's called wonderful He's called Counselor. He's called Mighty God. There he is, the child. The son is called Mighty God. He's called, notice this, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This, uh, this promised one will have a government. Um, the government will be upon his shoulder. Wow. The increase of his government. He will have a government. Peace there will be no end to the peace and upon the throne of david the davidic kingdom how do you how do you how do you like that the davidic kingdom that promised davidic covenant is is fulfilled in christ as he will come and establish his kingdom the hebrew concept of a person being anointed has the purpose of sending him on a mission and providing everything needed to accomplish the task. This section of Scripture speaks of the person of Christ. The statement, Jesus is the Christ, means Jesus Christ will do everything needed to accomplish the task of bringing salvation to mankind. 
He is the anointed Savior, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who bears our sins in our place. The anointed of the Lord, as Isaiah 61 calls him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the anointed one, that's what John says, the Messiah, the Savior promised in the Old Testament, has been born of God. The preposition ek, from theos, from God, is placed at the head of the expression in order to emphasize the source of their conversion. The verb gineo, the perfect passive indicative, to beget or be born, has the Jewish sense of one who brings others over to his way or mode of life. It might be defined as to convert someone a geneo, a, a becomer, a, a begitter, to convert someone. That's the metaphorical sense. The perfect sense means the birth is complete and continues up to the time of writing. The passive voice means an external agent performs the begetting. That is to say, God himself performs the begetting. When it comes to salvation, John makes it absolutely clear that it is an act of God, all of it. The conversion, the indwelling, baptizing, sealing, even the progressive work of sanctification and glorification. Salvation is of the Lord means God is the originator, the sustainer, and finisher of our salvation absolutely clear what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30. John says he wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life, you may have life in his name. That was uh, John chapter 20 verse 31. That's the purpose statement of the gospel. Who is Jesus? is an important definition, and John is specifically emphasizing Jesus' humanity because there are those that deny he was born of the virgin, those that deny that he was born of flesh, or deny he is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. In so doing, problems arise in the church, resulting in arguments and divisions. It is no mistake that John links the essentials of the faith with love. The evidence of a born-again person has to do with what one believes about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the God-Man, and the only one that can take away the sin of the world. Jesus alone is the unique Son of God, which speaks of His sinlessness and his ability to represent God in this legal transaction. He alone is the unique Son of Man. Notice that. Son of God, now Son of Man, which speaks of being born of a virgin, linking humanity with deity, and speaks of his sinlessness and his ability to represent mankind in this legal transaction of paying the ultimate price in the place 
of mankind, a substitute for mankind. He is the satisfaction for sin as he alone paid the price in his blood. That's what propitiation means, a satisfaction for sin. And he alone paid the price. Does one profess Christ as the Son of God who came in the flesh and paid the price for sin? That's the big question. That's the big test. Look at the next phrase. And everyone who is loving him that begot, he also loves him that has been begotten from him. The masculine adjective pas, all or everyone, combined with the present participle of agapeo, it's a present active participle, with a definite article, means whosoever loves, or everyone that loves him, that begotten one, everyone that loves him, that begot him. The Greek gineo is now an aorist, active participle, accusative masculine singular, with the definite article, meaning this person who is a begitter, the one that begets. He's talking about Christ here. A born-again person loves God. So it is that the believer also agapa, present active indicative, third person singular, or it could be a present active subjunctive, third person singular, continues to love him that has been begotten of the Father. Most translate the verb love as indicative, since this is an action that is really taking place. Not as subjunctive, but as the indicative. It is important to distinguish our position in Christ with our walk in Christ. The born-again person's position in Christ is complete. The action is performed by God and is complete, stands complete. We stand before God declared righteous, legally acquitted, for Jesus paid the required price. However, our daily walk in our new life in Christ is another matter. We can sin. We can do all those things that ruled us in our old life. Though we have a new ability to hear God, and we have been given the Holy Spirit to help us and convict us of our sin so that we have the power to make it right and put off the old self. This theological point should not be lost in our interaction in the church. When a brother or sister is behaving badly, we do not question their salvation, their position in Christ. If they profess to be a Christian and they believe the essentials of the faith, then we do not challenge their rightful position in Christ, but we can point out they are acting badly. If, however, a person professes to be a Christian, but what they say about the essentials do not measure up, then that person is not a Christian, and their heresy should be pointed out. That is why we call a Mormon, or a Jehovah Witness, or a Oneness Pentecostal, or the hundred others a cult and not part of the body of Christ because they are not saved since they do not believe the essentials of the faith. This person is not born of God and scripture says to be ever watchful of this error in the church and call it like it is.
A huge warning is given in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And again, in this book, in this little book, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, and chapter 4, verse 3. Don't forget the essentials of the faith. Move down to verse 2. Look at the first phrase. By this we know that we love the children of God. Another test is presented to the believer for the purpose of self-examination and involves the love principle. Dr. Robinson says the phrase, by this we know, is John's usual phrase for the test of the sincerity of our love. The apostle states in tuto, in this or by this, the neuter pointing to the generic message. The main verb is the present of ginosko, the present active indicative, first person plural. Notice that we know or we understand that we love the children of God. John now includes himself in the self-examination of the law of love, the love principle. The Lord commanded us to love the brethren and now offers the test for whether or not we Agapo men, present active indicative, first person plural. We love the technon, the children that belong to or are possessed of theos, of God. Move to the next phrase. When we love God and we keep his commandments. What was the first phrase? By this we know that we love the children of God. How? When we love God and keep His commandments. The conjunction, hotan, when or whenever, or as long as, forms the temporal part of the clause relating one's behavior of loving the children of God to the time when we are loving God. This is another way of stating the abiding law. The abiding law states that we do not sin when we are abiding in him. We saw that earlier, 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. The indefinite temporal clause formed with the subjunctive of agapeo, we might love, serves to limit the action to a time when God is in mind. The abiding principle means we must keep God in our minds and thoughts. There is an expression that my father used to say to us all the time, what you think upon grows. I remember him saying that all the time. What you think upon grows. That is the secular equivalent of a command to abide in the word. When we love God, we keep his commandments, the entola, specifically the love commandments. That is the outworking of the love principle. Have you noticed that when Jesus gave the command to love, he did not give an itemized list of commands. Jesus simply says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that in Matthew chapter 22? In grace, there is a sincere concern for people and a genuine love for God. Truth and the knowledge of God's love moves to the heart of man, moving him to action. Loving action that can only come from the Holy Spirit. This is abiding in Christ. Just as mass in motion produces a hard-to-stop momentum, the abiding presence of God in a Christian 
activity, abiding in Christ cannot be overcome by sin. The subjunctive of tero, present active subjunctive, we might attend to carefully, or we might keep, is used in this temporal clause to limit the period of time to be contemporaneous or in parallel with the main verb of knowing and loving. This possibility is, of course, related to one's fellowship with God. The subjunctive here can be interpreted as a simple statement of fact. That is, we love God and keep His commands. The exhortation of 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, moves to a temporal relationship which exercises our new, born-again, God-given love. Move to the next verse, verse 3, the first phrase, For this is the love of God. The tight link between love and obedience reveals the spiritual condition of a person. Does one walk in the Spirit? Does one abide in Christ? Is there an understanding of His Word that bears fruit in the form of deed? The love that God gives produces fruit. The love principle is introduced as a statement of fact by use of the feminine demonstrative pronoun hutos. This, referring to the sub subject agape, that's another feminine noun. The love, with a definite article there, it's a specific love. The state of being verb, aini, to be, is used to point out what the love of God is. Dr. Wiest writes this, in the expression the love of God, we have the objective genitive, in which the noun is the genitive case, that is God, and receives the action of the noun of action, love. Thus we are to understand that John means the love for God. That is, the saint's love for God is shown by his keeping his commandments. Look at the next phrase. That we keep His commands. The Hina Clause, that, points out two facts concerning the love of God. The first fact is that the love of God involves our careful attention to Christ in Tola. Commandments or commands. And the definite article there is specific commands. The second fact is that His commands are not burdensome. Dr. Wallace says this is an explanatory usage, translated namely, that we continue keeping His commands. Notice the word for command is placed before the verb tereo, a present active subjunctive, first person plural. We might attend to carefully, or we might keep placing stress upon the object, the commands. Dr. Robinson likes to translate this present subjunctive, we keep on keeping His commandments. Move down to the next phrase. And the commands of Him are not burdensome. John lists the commands before as a object clause. Namely, we keep on keeping His commandments. Now the commands are the subject. His commands are not burdensome. The adjective varus, uh, it's a feminine plural adjective, is used in the literal sense as heavy in weight, but in the metaphorical sense, 
The word means burdensome, severe, grievous, or even at times translated as violent or cruel. The sense here is bearing a burden that we can carry with the Spirit's help. There are burdens that cannot be carried by oneself. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, to help a brother who carries a burden, uh, a baros, the heaviness, he cannot bear uh, a bartozo to take up in order to carry. So we are to help a brother who carries a burden he cannot bear alone. Then he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5, we will have burdens. It's a different word. Forton, a load, a pack usually carried by a foot soldier that are common to everyone that we all will bear. In this new life in Christ, we will have troubles as the world hates him and is actively opposed to the things of God. But God is with us to help us walk in obedience. And what greater love is this that he gave his life as a substitute for us? That's the prime motivator for love. Look at verse 4. Because everything that has been begotten of God overcomes the world. The conjunction hati introduces the reason why keeping the word of God is not a burden. The emphasis is placed upon overcoming the world, its system, and all its opposition to God and the things of God. It is a fact that everything, the pos, notice it's a, it's a neuter, everything begotten of God overcomes the world. The neuter emphasizing the principle, so most translated, whatever is born of God. You would expect a person there a masculine, whosoever. But this here is a neuter. Whatever is born of God. Speaking of principles, Jesus has overcome the world, so it is that we have overcome the world in Him. In the Gospel, Jesus' last word to His disciples before His passion is, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's in John chapter 16, verse 33. The neuter of gineo, perfect, passive, participle, nominative, neuter, singular. And it has a definite article. The thing having been begotten, or the one having been born again, speaks of the result of the work of God, as Dr. Robinson notes, neuter, singular, perfect, passive, participle of gineo, rather than the masculine singular, as in First uh, John chapter 5, verse 1, to express sharply the universality of the principle, as in John 3, 6 and 3, 8 and 6, 37 and 6, 39. Previously, John noted in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he said this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The strength to overcome the world 
that we possess in our new life and relationship with Christ is secure the moment we believe. But the outworking of abiding in Christ and His Word results in ever more increasing quality of life and maturity. John stated that the babe in Christ has, past tense, overcome the world. In chapter 4, verse 4, because of their possession of the Holy Spirit. Now, John expresses that the child of God possesses nakeo, present active indicative, third person singular, victory, or has overcome the world, or is overcoming the world. The present tense emphasizes our continual ability to overcome the pull of the world system. It is by faith, our trust in what Christ did on the cross and who he is that secures our victory over the world system and all of its evil. Look at the next phrase. And this is the victory, our faith, that conquers the world. Overcoming the world involves victory through faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, we died with him. That's what Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says. When he was buried, we were buried with him. That's what Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says. And when he rose, we arose with him. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says. We have victory in Christ today and are sealed in him until the day of redemption. John begins this clause by use of the demonstrative pronoun which points out a goal. That's the purpose of a demonstrative pronoun. It points out a goal. The expression kai ata esten he nike he nike sa ton kosmon might be translated, and this is the victory, the one conquering the world. Notice the chain of nominative cases. The first one, they're all feminine. Notice that, they're all feminine. The first one is the demonstrative pronoun this, hutas. The next is the victory, the Nike, the victory. And then the nakeo, the same word is in the, in the participle, aorist active participle with the definite article, she that conquered. And then finally, the pistos, the pistos, the now nominative feminine singular with the definite article, a definite faith. The object, cosmos, with a definite article, the world, is surrounded and grammatically outnumbered by all the nominatives. Do you notice that? All of those feminine nouns are all nominative case. The picture is drawn here of the world system with all its evil, the depraved nature and deception surrounds the child of God and is actively engaged in battle with the purpose of destroying his or her Christian character, life, and testimony of Christ. But victory is certain for the child of God because Christ has conquered the world by his death, burial, and resurrection. Trusting Christ in his victory empowers the believer to overcome the world because victory has already been accomplished by Christ. 
the translation might read, the one that became victorious over the world. It is our faith. The aorist participle might be viewed as an ingressive aorist, meaning it goes back to the beginning of our victory. Victory comes first in the form of our present new life in Christ as possessing the new ability to overcome sin in our lives and no longer be slaves to sin. Ultimate victory means we will be resurrected to life with Christ as he was the first fruits of the resurrection, thus conquering the last enemy, death. Notice the progression given in 1 John to the theological fact that we partake in Christ overcoming the world system by the use of the perfect tense in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Then, in chapter 4, verse 14, John moves the theological fact to the practical reality as the believer overcomes the world in the present tense in chapter 5, verse 4. That is to say there is a progression of nekeo to overcome in chapter 2, verses 13 14. The subject is young men. The verb is a perfect active indicative. You have overcome, past tense, completed, and the object is the evil one. So the young men have overcome the evil one. Then in chapter 4, we have the little children as the subject. The verb, you have overcome, again is the perfect active indicative. Who have they overcome? The object is them, the false prophets. So the little children have overcome the false prophets. Then it comes to chapter 5, verse 4. The one who has been begotten of God is the subject. The one is a perfect passive participle. The one who has been begotten of God. He is overcoming, present active indicative, and the object is the world. The one who has been begotten of God, he is overcoming, continues to overcome the world. Look at verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, if not the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John returns to the subject of the heresy and the source of all salvation. The heresy at hand has to do with the Gnostic denial of the true humanity and true deity of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our victory is our faith. And the source of our faith has to do with the understanding that Jesus is very God. As he was made lower than the angels to come in the flesh in order to act as the lone substitute for the sin of mankind, the present participle of nakeo, the one who overcomes, speaks of a person who is known as an overcomer, or as Dr. Vincent says, the article with the participle denoting what is habitual, one who leads a life of victory over the world. Likewise, Dr. Robinson writes, the one who keeps on conquering the world. The thing that this overcomer overcomes is the cosmos, the world. 
This person is in a state of overcoming, as the state of being verb esten is used. Dr. Worsby notes that our victory is a result of faith, and we grow in faith as we grow in love. The more you love someone, the easier it is to trust him. The more our love for Christ is perfected, the more our faith in Christ is perfected, too, because faith and love mature together. I love what Dr. Worsby say, says there. He concludes, faith and love mature together. Can't have one without the other, and they mature together. Why? Because they're both gifts of God. The conditional particle I, if, serves to make the audience think about the fact that Jesus, the God-man, came in the flesh to die for the world, and the one that pisteomen, present active participle, the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God is an overcomer. This is a person who stands believing Jesus is who he says he is. This person stands as a believer declared righteous, not because of something he did, but because of what God did. This is agape love, a giving love, not a you give me this and I'll give you that kind of love. Jesus the Savior is the unique Old Testament Son of God of Psalm 2, the anointed of Israel, who will save his people and bring in the millennial kingdom on earth. God is the one that begets. He is the one that gives the believer a new heart and removes the heart of stone. Jesus paid the price by giving his life as a substitute for us, and the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells us, sealing us in him until the final day of redemption. What a blessing that is. I hope you are enjoying this section of Scripture. Chapter 5 is concluding it with quite the message. So go translate the next section and come back for the next lesson. 